Blog Talk Radio. live from the great state of Indiana and in Indianapolis. So today we have a continuation from last week's show. So we are just trying to shed light, discuss the massacre that happened back in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we had a show last week and people reached out saying, hey, maybe why don't you take the other week to discuss uh, a little bit more so that at least we can expand on the subject. And I reached out, of course, to Brother Warren, and Brother Warren accepted to give us a historical perspective of what happened and the significance and also the importance 
for us to remember where we have been, where we have come from, because if you don't study your history, you are bound to make the same mistakes as those uh, in the past. So, Brother Warren, how, how are you doing this evening? Wonderful, wonderful, uh, Noah. Glad to be here again to, uh, to dialogue with you and your uh, listening audience. Great, great, great. Yeah, so without further ado, we just want to just to jump in. Uh, let's start with a recap of last week's show. Could you briefly review some of the main points we discussed last week uh, on the show? Yes, uh, Noah, uh, I want to say greetings to the listening audience. I'm Brother Warren. I'm also a host of a radio show called New Orleans Wake Up, and uh, I've been joining Noah for the last few Wednesdays, he and Nancy, uh, you know, sharing and dialoguing with many of the different topics that uh, they've brought up. Uh, the show that would be entitled The Tulsa Massacre, that would be dated uh, June 2nd, uh, was the day of after the 100th uh, anniversary of a race massacre terrorist a racist terrorist act that occurred May 31st uh, and June 1st, 1921. This particular incident was one of many in, in American history. Um, and this particular uh, terrorist, racist terrorist uh, act uh, has received uh, lots of attention, more so as a result of the uh, spring and summer of 2020, uh, as a result of the killing of George Floyd and the uh, other killings of blacks at the hands of the police, uh, many issues of, uh, of racism and injustice towards uh, African-Americans have been talked about. And so it was, Around it. and of course, this was the presidential election campaign season, and uh, in May of twenty ninth of twenty twenty, that was the ninety ninth anniversary. And remember, Donald Trump was to, was to hold a rally in Tulsa, and he was supposed to do it. If I'm not mistaken, it was going to be on actually. I would have to check the calendar on on the actual day of the anniversary, but he received his campaign received pushback from a lot of black people because they felt that Donald Trump's legacy and his rhetoric was not consistent with uh, the, the the concept of racial reconciliation and atonement. And so the Trump campaign, uh, I understand, changed the date of the, the Tulsa riot. And so people begin to hear that. I think I read where uh, Google had uh, more uh, searches of the Tulsa riot, the Tulsa massacre, than at any other time. So uh, that's why this particular incident has gotten more and more of attention because of the context in which has gone on. The memory of the riot was brought back to our attention and, and, and mainstream probably in the 1990s. Yeah, it was 1990s. A book was published in 1982 
but it was in the 90s where uh, it was talked about a game, even a documentary was made. So uh, the recap basically was uh, a 19-year-old black uh, male was accused of touching, assaulting a white girl on an elevator in downtown Tulsa. Uh, whites gathered uh, to, uh, of course, the black guy was arrested. The young man was arrested. He was kept, kept in the uh, jail. The white men gathered. And, and at, the t- at that time, white men would, uh, we had these type of allegations against a black male in particular, and they were under, in the custody of the sheriff of the police. White men would just go down and get the black person out of the jail and just lynch them. And we talked about lynchings and how lynchings were uh, a part of racial terror uh, against black people, more so beginning after slavery. And uh, lynchings were organized, pre-planned entertainment events for whites, for white families, uh, et cetera. Children, everybody was there. A platform for for hanging was set up. But the person wouldn't just hang. They didn't just have a rope around them. They were tortured. They were tortured for a very long time. Uh, And then after they were, uh, you know, after they were hung, their bodies were set to fire. And after their bodies were charred, charred, you know, after their bodies were were, were burned to to charring, the the whites would take pictures and photographs with their families, with their young boys, mostly white men with their young boys. Postcards were made out of them. And then the whites would uh, compete against each other. That's being nice. They would many times break out into fights with each other over grabbing the remains as souvenirs. So this was the climate of that day. So the young man who was accused of uh, of supposedly assaulting this white girl, that was mm-hmm. going to be his fate. That was what was going to happen to him. But the black men in the northern section of Tulsa, called Greenwood section, were determined not to let that happen to this young man. So the black men grabbed their guns and, and, and went down to the to the city, to the uh, courthouse, to demand that the black boy be given to them. Uh, mm-hmm. A tussle ensued. One of the white men tried to grab the gun of the black guy, and then a fi- a shots were fired. Twelve people were killed at that point. Now this is around ten o'clock, ten thirty, May thirty first. And then when you get 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, the white men are organizing, galvanizing to attack and assault the black section of town called Greenwood. The black men preparing for this uh, get as many of arms that they have. And we also mentioned that many of these black men were World War I veterans. So were the white yes. guys World War I veterans. World War I ended in 1918. So we're in, ni- and we're in 1921. And so uh, the black people were outgunned. So the white people used machine guns and they used airplanes to drop bombs and to shoot from the airplanes, destroying uh, a community that had prided itself on being very self-sufficient with many business enterprises. It was dubbed by some blacks as the Negro Wall Street. 
Now, what I learned was that Greenwood was also referred to as Little Africa. Now, I don't know whether the white people, to be derisive, called it Little Africa, or whether black people out of pride referred to it as Little Africa. But Little Africa was a nickname that that section of Tulsa was called there. And uh, as a result, there was no, no, no white Okay, how many people died? Approximately 300 or more died. They were buried in mass graves, which, which there's still an investigation going on right now. And uh, no whites were charged or arrest. The black people were put into internment centers, internment camps around town. And uh, the town silenced the issue. You talk about it. The blacks did rebuild, by the way. The blacks did rebuild. Uh, and so from the 1920s up into the 1980s, it was not talked about. The survivors would talk about it maybe with their families. Sometimes they didn't. But a book was written in 1982. And so as a result, that was brought back to, to public memory. Yeah, th- thank you, Brother Warren, for uh, that that recap. It's amazing what people can do to fellow human beings. And I just want to point out back in the 1920s at this time, uh, racism was at its peak, especially there was something very phenomenal going on, I think, around that time. And this is when the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the Klansmen, were sort of rebuilding, revamping their movement. So it doesn't surprise some of us who have done a little bit research on history uh, to see that the the happenings in Tusa were sort of ignored or not talked about by the press and things like that. It's just because at that time, the environment that existed, it was such that uh, anything and anything and everything to do with black people was viewed as a threat. So having a thriving black community where black people uh, keep the dollars within their compounds and confines, it was a threat. We see the same thing actually on the African continent, the continent with everything, but there are some external factors, not only internal factors, but the external factors that uh, at play especially uh, when you see a thriving African society. So uh, moving on to our discussion today. So before we go any further, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Prime Time. We are having a part two uh, discussion with Brother Warren, uh, uh, an expert on these matters. He's sharing some thoughts. Uh, So you are listening to free information. This is information that actually is very helpful. We do this show to sensitize, to educate, to inform our listeners how things used to be back then. So we are very, very thankful, very happy to have somebody who takes his time to share what used to happen and which is still happening, unfortunately in this time and day. So, Brother Warren, can you share a little bit on, because I know some people may think this was just an isolated incident. So, where uh, I think there were other 
uh, racially motivated massacres around the United States. So can you briefly mention to our listening audience other massacres that are similar to Tulsa? Yes, I want to say, first of all, I'm, I'll, I'll definitely be looking forward to dialoguing with many of the listening audience when you have any questions or comments, because uh, uh, teaching and learning and, 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 you know, you don't have a real conversation unless questions are asked and people are, are participating. Mm-hmm. I want to, before I get to, to that, I want to say this. I want to say this. This is very, very important. Many people have been hearing uh, black people refer to, to, to black Wall Street as uh, almost like some sort of uh, – Mecca of entrepreneurship. We have to be careful about this, and we have to put this in context. Black people in Greenwood, most black people were still working poor people who worked outside the community for white people as maids and butlers. The professional class of blacks, because there was segregation, because blacks were restricted from interacting with whites, from participating in white spaces, the professional black class had a natural benefit of having a black market. So those blacks who were doctors, who were lawyers, the blacks who owned the hotels, the drugstores, things a community has for its own needs, uh, that group of blacks benefited in a, in a de facto way from segregation. But most black, you know, Tulsa was an oil town. It was a it was an oil boom town. No blacks had any jobs in that oil sector. Okay, so blacks were kept from those type of industrial jobs in that area. They had low-wage jobs. So that has to be brought out because I think some of us are kind of romanticizing that as some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, black American Wakanda or something. And we kind of have to put that in context. And so I want to bring it up. The, the, the observation of Greenwood was that black people uh, who worked these jobs, these menial jobs, came back to their community and spent the money in their community. And the reason why we put emphasis on that today is because in 2021, the African-American communities, for the most part, have lost that. You know, when you look at what was happening in, in Greenwood, the dollar was circulating five or six times among black people. Well, we don't have that today. And so there's somewhat of a, of a reminiscing of what blacks had in terms of enterprises vis-a-vis today when there are a lot of groups like various Arab nationalities, Koreans, Vietnamese, et cetera, that are in our neighborhoods running a lot of industry. So I just wanted to put that in context. So most of the people were working poor people, living in a segregated, racial, hostile environment. And it's just a miracle when you think of the fact that black people were able to kind of create some sort of self-sustaining not self-sustaining to where it could have protected them from the hate and venom of white people, because we see the result of, as we're talking about these massacres. So to go back to your point, these types of terroristic acts, they should be referred to as terrorism, 
because what has happened is we've been taught that vocabulary word, terror and terrorism, as if it's the domain of Arab Muslim fanatics. You see what I'm saying? When mm-hmm. black people in the United States literally have lived under terrorist acts of white people for several decades, for over two centuries, at least two centuries. And so uh, this was very common for whites to become angry about something, which was a justification to do what they wanted to do. And in many cases, the accusation was some sort of assault of a white female. That's very, very important. Using the white female being assaulted as a rallying cry for white people to attack black people. There are hundreds of these incidences. I'll just pick four, maybe, and I won't even do justice to the topic. But in 1898, in Wilmington, North Carolina, the black people, along with many of the white people, had a democratic government in process. You had black people elected along with white people. And many of the white people uh, who did not like this uh, created a situation to where there was literally a coup, a coup on the Wilmington city government by the angry whites who did not like the fact that blacks were participating in government and drove them out of government, attacked black businesses, killed black people. I don't have the number. And let me tell you about the numbers of these deaths. Whatever numbers you see of deaths in these massacres, you multiply them. You multiply them by 10 because black people are always undercounted when it comes to these. Their debts are undercounted. So Wilmington uh, is something that's been talked about recently. A new book came out about the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. Then we have the Forsyth County, Georgia. Uh, There's a county in Georgia where there's very few black people. There might be some now moving in where in 1912 there were two white women that were assaulted. Uh, We know now it was not black people that assaulted these white women, but black men were accused, and the white people went on a rampage and purged the entire county of black people to where in the 1980s, Oprah Winfrey, on her show, the Oprah Winfrey show, she actually went to... Forsyth County, you all can go on YouTube to see that. Just type in Oprah Winfrey, Forsyth County, Georgia, and you will see in the 1980s, the racial hate still exists in that county where blacks had been driven out in 1912. And I remember a march was done in Forsyth, and the whites attacked them viciously. All of that's on YouTube. You can see that. Then we go to 1919. Again, this is one year after World War I. This is called, we're talking about from the winter of 1919 until the autumn. Over 32 cities, white mobs went into black areas and just attacked black people. Now, keep in mind, black people fought back as well. 
this was after World War One, so you had a lot of tensions built up by uh, discharge, uh, discharge service members, white and black, coming back to the country. There were competition for jobs. There was competition for housing. There was a lot of tension built up. This was called the Red Hot Summer of 1919. Over 32 cities where white mm-hmm. mobs attacked blacks. One of them was a rural area in Arkansas where over 200 blacks were killed during that time. And then we talked about Tulsa. But then there was another well-known uh, purge, Racist Terrorist Act Massacre in 1923 in Levy County, Florida. The, the community was called Rosewood. And Rosewood was like a little like a little train stop, a little lumber, a little lumber mill, black community, self, self-sufficient. Allegation was over some white woman assaulted, and they, they ran the blacks out. Now, a movie was made about that in 1997 called Rosewood. The black film director, John Singleton, made that movie. And I, I do know that the, the, the survivors who were living in the 90s, some kind of way, some sort of reparations were paid by the state of Florida, I think, in that case. That's just to name a few. Uh, um, many of these things also occurred in what we call the Midwestern states, Illinois, Indiana, uh, uh, Michigan, and many of these states. In fact, many of those, these states like Indiana and Illinois were worse. They were worse oh, than yeah. the deep south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true, because I think uh, uh, for our, for the benefit of our listening audience in uh, in my great state here in Indiana, so we have Martinsville, which used to be one of the headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan. So the KKK mm-hmm. or the Ku Klux Klan had a very huge, huge base here in Indiana, and they actually this again yeah. coincides with a time frame back in the twenties, in the nineteen twenties, when uh, these racist groups, because I think the right term is these racist groups who paraded themselves under the name of Christians, under the name of making America great again. We've seen that term, I think, recently. So those were some of the catchphrases that these groups uh, went by, because when you look at Martinsville in Indiana back in 2000, there were only 11 people who identified themselves as African American uh, because they, it's 97% European or white. And then there are just a few, uh, I think, uh, people with mixed race and things like that. But Martinsville, Indiana, is actually one of those places which here in Indiana has that bad name because of uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Of course, we have Whitetown here mm-hmm. in Indiana, and we have also Whiteland. Those are some of the places, if you go further down south, because uh, uh, tension, I think, uh, people of our kind, especially if you go south of Indianapolis, as you go down south past Bloomington, you want to watch your back. So we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to unmute them, the microphone for our listening audience to ask questions to Brother Warren. So we, we're going to play a very 
important song in the African movement. This is uh, a, an anthem for black people, just like we have Kosisikelele Africa as the the national anthem for black people on the continent. But all over here, this is a song that resonates with our people here. So let's play this song as we just relax a little bit. And when we come back, we're going to unmute the mic so at least you can ask Brother Warren a question. So again, make sure you take advantage of this free history lesson. So let's enjoy this track. That's a beautiful piece, of course, talking about freedom for our folks here. So if you are joining us, please, you, if, uh, let's do this. Let's proceed in an orderly fashion. So what you want to do is you press or dial 1 on your phone keyboard. Then it's going to alert me to unmute your mic so that at least you can share your thoughts. You can chime in on this discussion. So press 1 on your dial pad so that at least it's going to let me to get you connected. So as we proceed with the show, Brother Warren, can you just explain to our listening audience the importance of the song that I just played? 
Yeah, that song entitled Lift, <clears throat> Lift Every Voice and Sing was composed by the African-American poet James Weldon Johnson in 1905. That is known as the Black National Anthem. And that song was sung, that song, black people in their schools and in their churches would sing that song, especially when it was Black History Month. Now, remember, Black History Month started out in 1926 as Negro History Week. It didn't become a month until sometime in the 1970s. It was observed as a month. And do you know that many white people, many white school districts, I'm sorry, many school districts in the South, uh, because black schools, you know, were still under the school districts that whites were the superintendent of, they tried to ban black people from singing that song. And mm-hmm. that song is still sung today. You mostly hear it a lot of times during Black History Month. And I want to just read just a verse. It's, it's, Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening sky. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. And then the chorus is, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. It's three verses to the, to the song. And I just let me say this. In the second verse, it says, Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our father sighed. We have come over a way that with tears have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughter, out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last, where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. And then you go back and you sing, sing the chorus. So it's a, it's a beautiful song, and it speaks to, to our experience. Now, Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina uh, the African-American congressperson mm-hmm. is trying to propose that this song be the United States National Anthem. Well, I'm against that. I'm against that. I think this song speaks particular to black people's experience in America. I don't want no Klansman or no skinhead or no racist white singing that song. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. No, that that's true, Brother Warren, because I think uh... – what has happened to black people, I think, for ages, for hundreds of years, is the dehumanization process that we have seen take every different shape over time. So that song, of course, it uh, resonates very much with our people and to the proposal that I think uh, the congressman is proposing, I think, uh, it's something that I think to most of us, we would want that song just to have that special meaning that it has for a particular group of people. So again, 
You are listening to Prime Time. This is a history lesson. We are providing free information, information that you have to know as a black person living in the United States. So, Brother Warren, what books do you recommend to our listening audience? Well, one book I, I would recommend as it relates to this, this concept of purging blacks out of communities, a sociologist, his name is Jane Lowen, L-O-E-W-E-N. He was famous. He wrote a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. That's one of his famous books. But he did a book entitled Sundown Town, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. And let me briefly read from the Amazon about the book. In, his ground, in this groundbreaking work, sociologist James W. Lewin, author of the classic bestseller, Lies My Teacher Told Me, brings to light decades of hidden racial exclusion in America and a provocative sweeping analysis of American residential patterns, Lowen uncovers the thousands of sundown towns, almost exclusively white towns, where it was an unspoken rule that blacks weren't welcome, that cropped up throughout the 20th century, most of them located outside of the South. Now, the term sundown towns, it goes like this. This is how the expression would go. And, and, and in many towns, you would see these signs in the town, and it would go like this. Nigger, do not get caught in this town when the sun goes down. And when you would be on the highway driving, you would actually see that sign in some of these towns. And oh, yeah. coming up, coming up in this country, I can tell you when we would go to trips, driving to Florida, going to California, uh, you know, going to Chicago, we were very cognizant of areas that we would be driving in that was dangerous. And 2021 is still that way. There's some, there are some areas that we know that we need oh, to, yes. you know, not hang around in because it's dangerous. Oh, yeah. yeah. For, actually, for yes. Uh, yes, actually, I'm going to sort of share something that happened to me on, on, on our program. So this is Indiana, for those who have done uh, some digging in history. It's one of those places where, like I mentioned earlier, the Ku Klux Klan had a huge base. And mostly up here in the Midwest, uh, the Midwest is uh, synonymous with... Uh, uh, having folks who are unkind, especially to our kind. So I live in Indianapolis, and then about 20, 30 minutes south, there is a place called Franklin. So there was a time back, I think, in the early 2000s. I think that must have been somewhere between 2008 and nine, somewhere there. So I was coming from Franklin, and I stopped at the gas station, and then these guys approach me and says, you are on the wrong side of town. So I just want to attest to the fact that sundowns places are actually uh, still alive and well. So somebody say, you are on the wrong side of town. Of course, I knew what he meant. So some of you, when Brother Warren is sharing about sundown states or cities, these are places where you had to leave before the sun went down. So let's open it up now to uh, Mr. Debele, your, your, your mic is unmuted. So if you have a question, feel free to jump in again also to 
others listening, you want to press 1 on your phone, and I'll get an alert, and then we'll unmute your line. We're trying to prevent the background noise. So if you, Mr. Ndevele, if you want to go ahead with your question. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for this program. And I think uh, it's indeed an eye-opener that uh, a black man has gone through a lot under a white man's uh, rule, you know, from way back. So my question is, um, is from the national anthem that we just listened to. When you look and listen to the words, it looks like the mindset of unity does exist in black people. But my challenge up to now is why can't we take a step ahead and do certain things that can start freeing ourselves? Because we are seeing that this evil, we used to physically see it at that time whereby people would be physically be beaten, lynched, and all that, and, and they used to put all those signs. But those things have disappeared in terms of visually seeing them or things happening where people can actually see. But they are just transformed to something else different. So my thing is, why is it, are there any efforts? I can tell that based on the other, uh, what we, we we listened to last last week, we are seeing that black people had tried to start coming together, coming up with their own businesses and trying to be self-sufficient and be able to, to, to do things among themselves so that they can empower themselves. But we see that that has disintegrated. We have moved back to whereby we work so hard, our monies are going back to the systems that actually work against us. At the end of the day, the money that I get paid, I hand it over to the same systems that work against us. Were there any efforts or are there any efforts at this time that can help us to say, hey, look, let's open our own bank. First of all, let's be uh, economically independent. Let's depend on ourselves. What can we do so that we can having some form of power that we could start doing things on our own and not so much to depend on the white folk. I hope I, I said a lot of things. I don't know if you got my question clear. Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you for I, I thank you for your question and comment. Uh no, I'd like to just start by addressing what he what he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh well the song Lift Every Voice and saying more important was a song to inspire black people to keep on pushing, to stay alive, don't give up, and remember where we've come from and we're, we're moving ahead. It's, it's an it's a important song because so many times we have been given the belief that it's just gloom and doom for us. And I think that when you look at, look at the fact that there are over one billion black people on the planet. Yes, there are people who are trying to move in the direction you said, sir. But what we have to admit is that most of us are under the spell of misinformation and brainwashing by a racist outlook. And so that's the challenge. How do we codify this 
accurate knowledge of our experience? How do we codify this wherever we are such that it will give us, a, by default, a unified view on how to look at people in their relationship with us and what we need to do to move forward? So we're, we're, fighting, uh, we're fighting lack of information by the vast majority of us on the planet. Wherever we are, we live under the spell of the lies and the myths that are perpetuated by other people against us. Yeah, so thank you, Brother Warren. I just want to add to, to, to that is that we as black people are in, in a sense in a state of hypnosis. There are certain things that may be right before your very eyes, but your mind has been trained in such a way that you are going to miss, guide your eyes not to see something that's just very before your very eyes. So there are powers that be that are waking tirelessly. Because when you look at what happened back in 1921, uh, because, uh, that happened because it was as a result of hate. Black people were waking collectively, keeping the money within the parameters of their uh, areas. When that was happening, other people saw that and said, we have to come up with something so to disrupt, to distract, and to destroy. So what has been happening, I think, in this time and age is that the powers that be have become more sophisticated in how they are misdirecting our eyes not to see. So I can share a little bit more on that, but I think I just want to point out that there are powers that be that are behind the curtain uh, uh, misleading what we think we are doing, but actually it's misdirected. So I just wanted to put that on the record. So if anyone else has a question, or if no, then um, Mr. Debele, you can go again, or you can have a follow-up question as we wait for the others. So again, if you want to ask a question, feel free to press one on your phone line, and then we should be able to pick it up from here. So as we wait, Mr. Ndevela, you can go ahead with a follow-up question. Yeah, um, just for me, my, my concern, is, well, my my question will be, uh, maybe I'll put it more in a form of statement, so much of a question, but um, I'm most interested of what can we do next? What is it that we can do uh, that can help us to get out of these, uh, that this grip of these systems that don't work against us. Are there any any organization out there? Is there anything that we can say? Hey, if I'm I, like for me, I've got passion of empowering black people. That's my this last life goal. I want to make sure that black people are empowered. Anything I can do, at least I have still can breathe. I want to make sure that whatever power I have, I'll be able to empower black people. I think that will give me value in my life. But I need to have access to oh, somebody else who has got the same, shares the same passion as I have so that we can add up this thing together. You know, writing books is one big way we can educate our kids 
so that they don't fall in the same trap and think that everything is okay when things are not okay, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, do you know any other organization that are out there that I would go and see and talk to or anybody in the, anyone, someone else who's listening here who would say, hey, let me go and um, see if I can join this group to help empower black people. It could be in a different ways, but just to try and empower them. Yeah, that's a good yeah, question, I, uh, Mr. Ndebele. Yeah, so go ahead, Brother Warren. Yeah, I, I think that if you look in the particular community where you live and you see what uh, what black groups that are doing, you, you have, there are people doing things. There are so many people out here doing things. I think what we're looking for, we're looking for some big, massive group where everybody can follow. I don't think that that's going to be the way we're going to move forward. We have to kind of be networked throughout the the globe. Now, for example, you have in cities you may live in the United States, you have Kwanzaa groups. You have groups that put on Kwanzaa. That's the way to meet what we call conscious. Now, in the in the African American community, we use the term conscious. Are they conscious? Is this black person conscious as as opposed to bourgeois? Because we do make that kind of distinction in the United States mm-hmm. among blacks. Oh, yeah. A bourgeois black is just a black who boasts about what he has, his education. He and she walks around, and they, they have uh, good jobs. They may have government jobs, and they really do nothing to defend the community. That's what we call a bourgeois black. But a conscious black, is the black that might be involved in a community endeavor to fight the local school board and its neglect of black children, to fight, uh, even fight against black criminals in the neighborhoods. You know, black uh, people who sell drugs, you may have black people organized to fight that. You may have black people have study groups. These were black people they meet once a week or at a designated place to discuss a book. Uh, these are some practical things that go on that, 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 that exist. I can tell you it's so much. I don't know all of the groups that are doing things because this is a big world. It's a small world, but it still is a big world, you know. And so I would say start by seeing what's in your community, uh, what initiatives people have going on in the community. There's a group out of Los Angeles. I can't think of the name. It's an African-American group. They take trips to Africa. They, I mean, they go to Africa. They, they take trips to Africa, and they uh, spend time there. They commit to a project on the African continent. You have all of this type of stuff going on. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking, what we're looking for, I'm not saying you do it. I'm not saying you, Mr. DeBelli, looking for it. We're looking to turn on the television on CNN or uh, the mainstream news, and we're waiting to look for all of that. Well, that's not going to happen. Oh, yes, yes, that's true. That's the true. mainstream media is not going to highlight what black people are doing positive to help themselves. That goes against the whole image that they want to push about us out there. Exactly, exactly. This is part of the reason why we see uh, on the media that is what is referred to as negative journalism. You are only highlighting the negative. These people in Africa, they, they walk around naked. They don't have clothes and things like that. So when you see most of the people up on this part of the world, they think people on the continent are actually 
uh, walk around naked and things like that because that fits into the narrative that they want to put across. So, for instance, when you look at our, our state here in Indiana, this is why some of us, because we recognized from an early stage that uh, we did not have some uh, group where all the Zambians, for instance, here in the United States, in Indiana, were on one platform. This is why some of us, we worked hard to create or to introduce the association and getting Zambians connected so that at least you can interact and network with others. And then from the same group, we have seen the empowerment groups that have come out and things like that. So that when you look at the foundation of what we have done, so those are some of the initiatives that you look at your backyard, your environment, and see what is it that we can do. This is why I have always promoted uh, Zambians, not only here in Indiana, but across the United States. Here in Indiana, we worked under the banner of Zen. Uh, that was simply to get the Zambians on one platform and then in the national scale, we worked under the banner of ZANUS, getting all the associations on one platform, and you have all seen what has come out of that. So we have a, somebody who wishes to uh, make a comment. I think the last phone number is 6050. I don't have the name. So area code is 647. Question. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, great discussion. Um, first so, of all, is this Patrick? Um, yes, it is. How are you? Oh, it's good to have you <laughs> back on the program. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, I think the gentleman asked a good question, and I think it's a question that a lot of people are asking about what can they do, what groups can they join, and I think Brother Warren gave a good answer. Um, I think one of the things that when when you want to do something, you get with the right people. Um, exactly. We should start out with small. We should try to. We should. We should try to projectize things. And the reason I'm saying that, and what I mean by projectize, is make if we, if we have a, a small goal. Um, we should turn it into a project. And the reason why I'm saying that is that with a project, you have organization. You have instant organization. You figure out what resources are required. Uh, what, what, what money may be required, um, what skills may be required to, to complete the project. There's a start and an end date for most tasks. There's a start and an end date for the project as a whole. It just, it's an easier way to attack something and, uh, and have all of the requirements of the project known and understood by everyone who's involved, all of the mm -hmm. project stakeholders. So that's kind of my contribution to how I think we should kind of look at things you know, instead of leaving them open-ended, make everything a small project. Um, exactly. If we can't, and then move into bigger projects, right? Um, as far as, as Tulsa, I mean, it was absolutely no way that those, the inhabitants of, 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 of the town at that time um, knew or even thought that something like that, what happened, could happen to them. And so I think one of the things that we can take away from some of these incidences is security. So anything that's of value, anything that's worth having, um, is worth securing. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that, that means that we one of the one of the um, 
the lessons that we should take from that incident and the many other incidences like that that happen in the U.S. Um, is that once you get something of value, whether it's an organization, whether it's a lo- geographical location where we reside and we're doing things, whether it's data that we mm-hmm. want to protect, we should start thinking about security, safety and security and securing. So even if you have an organization, worst-case planning, what if this happens? What if somebody does that? Think of worst-case scenario and start planning for as if, you know, for those possible eventualities. And I think that's one of the lessons that we can take away from um, that we, we need to really buckle down around the world on, our, on security and safety and things like that. So I think that's one of the things that we can take away from these incidences that we can start thinking about and come up with ways to, uh, to kind of secure things that we think are valuable. Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you, Patrick. That's a very good comment. So, again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Primetime Radio Show. We are on every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We are continuing the discussion that we had last week on the Tusa uh, racial massacre that happened back in 1921. This is a 100-year discussion, just trying to look at what lessons can we learn? What can we draw? So you were just listening to Brother Patrick. I believe he's in Canada, uh, just sharing some thoughts on this uh, on on our topic. So if you have a question, press one on your dial pad, and then we'll get a notification. So Brother Warren, uh, to keep up with Patrick's uh, line of thought, reflecting on the lessons that we can learn from the past. Let's identify lessons that we should learn, especially from the Racial Terrorist Act that took place back then. And I think we are seeing them uh, continuing. So what lessons can we learn, Brother Brother Warren? I think Brother Patrick brought up a very important point. Uh, you know, when we look at these, ma- these terrorists, these racist terrorist acts that occurred, uh, particularly in the rural areas, one of the things that was most coveted was the property that blacks had acquired. You know, after slavery, black people had this real desire to own land because for the most part, the, 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 uh, the southern part of the United States where approximately 90% of blacks resided after slavery was agricultural. And so black people mastered the land. They knew how to make the land productive. So many of us sought to acquire land, and which we did. And a lot of these whites coveted the land. So when you had like in Forsyth County, Georgia, when they, when they ran those blacks out of the county, they took their land. They, they just took their land. And when you had the situation like in uh, Rosewood, they, they took their land. Because you see, the land is uh, something that becomes the foundation of wealth in the United States. Now, what Patrick was saying is, if you don't mind me adding to what he was saying, or, mm-hmm. or editorializing what he was saying, 
is that whatever we identify that will be successful for us, we must be prepared that there's going to be an attempted sabotage and there's going to be an attempt to derail the motion of progress. And so, therefore, as we have a plan, we must always have a backup plan for the attempted sabotage that will come. And so uh, getting to the lessons learned, so I've jotted down some, I've jotted down at least eight lessons. They could be thousands, but I, I'm going to keep it to eight. You may have some you've identified there and maybe some of the other callers. <laughs> Lesson number one, black sacrifice. It is important that black people from other countries who decide to reside in the United States and become citizens should know is that the black people that were already here were like Christ on the cross. We shed blood and gave our lives to make the ideals of democracy and freedom more truer in America. Black people spilt their blood in this land. So when you're walking on 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 streets and you're walking in forests, black people blood was shed. We shouldn't forget the Native Americans who were here also, who were here first and who also were removed from their native land. So that's the first lesson we should learn is black sacrifice. Because what has happened in America is that immigrant groups come to the United States with his eagerness to be accepted as an American. And no matter what their complexion, they try to climb up the pyramid of the racial hierarchy. So at the top of the pyramid are white people. And so in the process of trying to get to the top of that racial hierarchy, there is a participation and disrespect and disdain for black people in the United States. So we must remember black sacrifice. The next lesson I think we should learn is how white people, no matter what their various political views, can agree to be quiet about something. In all of these massacres, there was a conspiracy of silence. No one said anything. In denial, that's very important to understand. Because sometimes we may think CNN is on our political side. We may think MSNBC is on our political side. Some people may think Fox News, the local news. But all of these people who own these corporations are of the same mind. And they could decide, hey, we're not going to talk about this racism in America. We're going to shut it. We're not going to let nobody report on it. So the lesson is that whites know how to be uniform. They know how to as they say, stay on code. The next lesson we should learn is black resilience. That in spite of all of these dehumanizing uh, acts, terrorism, propaganda against black, black people still have shown the will to live. Now, of course you're going to have blacks that fall by the wayside. That is black people who choose drugs, who choose alcohol, who choose to escape some sort of week. Another lesson to be learned is 
the consistency of white lies and myths about Africa and black people. It is necessary that, now when I say whites, I'm not talking about every single white. Sometimes black people get defensive and we try to go off into that, well, it's not all white. We know every single white is not like this, but here's the point. The white people who are not racist are weak compared to the white people who are, or else the white people who are not racist would have been defeated the white races. But because we're still talking about racism, that means the whites who are not racist are relatively weak. So these <clears throat> perpetual lies about Africa and black people is still done in all type of sophisticated ways. If you talk to reporters and you talk to journalists who work in newsrooms and news desks, they'll tell you about stories they try to write that promote some positive average, the editors shut it down. Another lesson to be learned is black fear. Black people generally are still fearful in large extents of white people's power. We have been terrorized and conditioned through this terrorist act against us to fear white people's ability to inflict consequences on us. This is worldwide. You know, you know, in Africa, some African countries might be ready to go to war with each other. You know, pile up, stockpile the weapons and go to fight over the border. But when somebody that's white come in, like a white Arab or something, or some European, we become paralyzed. Terrorism in the USA, that the terrorist acts against the Native American peoples and the black peoples, and then also Mexican Americans in Southwest United States, this and the groups we see today in contemporary times, militia groups, there are many white groups on farms and ranches in rural areas preparing for a race war as we speak. The federal government knows about it. The FBI, they all know about it. But they are allowed to play soldier and to play war. And what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol was only an appetizer of what's out there and what, what is possibly about to come. Terrorism in the USA, let's look at here and not look overseas at extremist Muslims. Black denial. Many black people are in denial about the persistence of white racism. You hear black people on TV and say, oh, we shouldn't play the victim. We shouldn't, you know, so that's denial. I hear it all the time. And another lesson is the word Holocaust is not a Jewish word. The black people in the world have experienced Holocaust at the hands of European whites, Arab whites, and other kind of people who disdain us. Holocaust is not the sole possession. That word is not the sole possession of a particular group of people who practice a particular religion. We have to look at ourselves as having been victims of Holocaust. That's just some lessons I've identified there, uh, Noah. Yeah, th thank you. Thank you. That was very in-depth uh, lessons. I hope our listeners are taking notes and listening again. We do this show 
to bring to your attention information that may not be readily available out there because right now the state of Texas, the governor of Texas, I think it's Mr. Abbott, he has signed off on the law not to teach racial uh, theory because there are uh, some parts of the United States who feel that teaching about racial history, African history, black history, it's not going to settle well, especially with one, young kids, because there's this narrative that has been, has been put forth that there are those Europeans who came to this land to look for, uh, there were Puritans, I mean, church-loving Christians who came to spread the word of God when they came here. But contrary to what we see, of course, the Native Americans were destroyed. Right now, I think the Tasmanian Aborigines are no more. I think the last one was killed back in 1921. So the, the point that Patrick and Brother Warren make, those are very valid points. There has to be a coordinated effort and planning from us as black people to preserve and to protect and to defend what we stand for. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is free information. You should be glad and excited and uh, be thankful for our people here. Let me just make one point here. Hitler said something which has been echoed by some of the uh, big names out there on, in this political climate, Hitler said something like this. If you tell a lie long enough, loud enough, and often enough, the people will believe it. So if you repeat certain things, if you keep saying certain things, as we have seen, I think, on the media, especially uh, some people who are projecting and paddling certain unfounded, uh, uh, which I think the, the previous White House uh, advisor, if I can borrow her phrase, alternative truth. So there are people who are paddling alternative truths to create some mistrust in the systems. So again, Hitler said this back in the early uh, 30s. If you tell a lie, long enough, loud enough, and often enough, people will believe it. So always remember that there are powers that be that are putting out an agenda that they want. So let's go back to Patrick. I think you may have a follow-up comment or question. Uh, yes. Um, I, I want to take a look at the way things are today. There's many lessons we can learn, and Brother Warren gave some some excellent lessons, right, something that we can take from and people can think about um, as far as what has happened, uh, not just in Tulsa, but just through, you know, the history of black people in the United States. Um, I think one of the things I want to say is that there, there's, there's, there's some bright spots here. <laughs> there's some positive things that we can take away and we can look at, you know, when we look at um, the progress that we made uh, in certain areas, you know, as it relates, I'll just bring it back to Tulsa, 
there was a lot of progress that was made in towns like Tulsa mm-hmm. that we made. And, yes, they were thwarted, and, yes, they were destroyed, but we made a lot of progress. So if you fast forward. So now, now we have tools and technologies that we can use to recreate those things, in a, but in a, in a faster way, probably in a more cohesive way, um, um, irrespective of borders or geography. So I, I think if we can summon that same spirit, then we have the tools to take it even further today. Yes, are we still um, disadvantaged when it comes to, you know, those who, who would look to do us harm and that kind of thing? Yes, those, that, those things still exist. However, we have tools and we have certain knowledge and information now that we can recreate those situations and make them even better. And I think that should be the focus. The focus should be to look at what has happened and look to do something similar but in a better way, an even more efficient way that would make those people proud. And I think we should start thinking in that vein. Yeah, I think we should start thinking in that vein. We should start thinking, you know, in that vein positively. You know, we look at, I mean, look at what's going on now. We're all on the phone here talking on Blog Talk Radio. I mean, we have the ability to communicate worldwide, you know, better today than ever before in history. So I think we should look at the, the tools that are at our disposal today, look at the advantages that we have, some of the advantages that we have today, and look to use those to, to go back in history, take look at what we've done, globally, really, and look to recreate those things, but take it even further. As if they've passed the baton to us. It's like running, mm-hmm. you know, a race where you pass the baton. You pass the baton, the person just doesn't stand there and look at you and say, wow, you ran a great race. No, when you pass the baton, you have to take off, right? Exactly. <laughs> so they exactly. passed the baton to us. We got to take, we have to take off. We got to go. We yep. got to go. We don't have time. Right, so just wanted to mm-hmm. interject that into it. There's a little positivity, you know, oh, yeah. for, that's, for going forward. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, th- thank you for actually that comment because I think uh, we we are painting the picture from a historical perspective, which sometimes may seem very pessimistic. But to Patrick's point, we do this show, of course, like we are having discussion, we are having a dialogue, we're trying to see what is it that we can do, how can we do it, when can we do it, where can we start from, and things like that. So we as a people, there's a reason why I think our our kind is usually hunted down because others can see what we are capable of doing, especially if we were to... Uh, work together. Uh, the Black Wall Street back then in the 1920s was a perfect example because that was a threat. That was a threat to others. I believe we can replicate, we can duplicate, and we can even do better than that. This is why we have this show. Uh, we recognize the importance for, first of all, sharing this information so that our listening audience uh, have a firm understanding because we all know the adage about history. If you don't understand where you're coming from, 
and the lessons that were out there, chances of repeating the mistakes from the past are very high. So this is why we are looking at it from that angle and trying to see how can we empower especially the younger kids in this time and day to uh, put themselves in a position where at least they don't have to feel that they can't be what they want to be. Let us learn a very huge lesson, especially from the political scene, when you see, for instance, the Republican Party. They, there is one thing that I like about the Republican Party. One thing I like is that they are always in one accord. By one accord is they want to align themselves and get everybody lining up, facing in one direction. We saw what happened to uh, Liz Cheney. She was trying to say, hey, what, but what about this? What about that? Other people say, oh, no, let's chunk her out of the party. So you can look at something positive, even from that angle, is that I'm not saying whether it was right or wrong, but I'm just saying the point is the Republican Party are all on one accord, facing in one direction, and they don't care what uh, everybody else is saying. So us as uh, 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 black people, we can learn and see how we can reposition ourselves. So let's go to Brother Warren. What are your concluding yeah. thoughts? Yeah, yeah, so I, I want to say you. one of them. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Brother One. No, 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 finish, finish your, your, your whole statement. I apologize. What were you saying? Yeah, so I was going to ask because at least we are running low on time here, so I was just going to check. Go ahead and make a comment, and then we'll go into the closing statement. Yes, one of the lessons I've identified is black resilience, and I think that that's what Brother Patrick is talking about we've seen in all of these cases that we didn't just die. We, we kept going on. There's a, there's a, a comical scene. Uh, I, it, I think it was from a cartoon and it was about these bad children, these bad children. And I think the, rep, the, 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 the reply was, we're like roaches. We don't die. We multiply. <laughs> and I think the African people, we, we, we see that, we we don't die. We multiply, and so I, I just wanted to say that 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 was black resilience. You know, the determination and the will to live and to move on. I also want to say that uh, Billy Holiday, which was one of our greatest jazz vocalists, uh, sang a song. The song was composed by a Jewish person. It's called Strange Fruit, and the song was uh, written in 1939. Billy Holiday recorded it in 1939. And the song was a protest against lynching. And these are the lyrics to the song Strange Fruit. And by the way, on Hulu, there's a movie that's been made called Billy Holiday versus, I'm sorry, the U.S. versus Billy Holiday. Because when Billy Holiday sang the song, the U.S. government was on her back about singing the song. So the song is called Strange Fruit. It's a, a protest against lynching. And these are the words. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the Galen South, 
the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolias, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. And that song is called Strange Fruit. And I encourage everybody to go to YouTube and type in Billy Holiday Strange Fruit and listen to that uh that that melancholy tune that she mm-hmm. sang, she recorded, and the US government was on her trail about it. And there's a movie on Hulu called The US versus Billy Holiday. So when you try to tell the truth, you get persecuted and you get punished for it. That's very true. That's very true. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. And Jesus was out there talking about the truth and preaching the gospel. But people were uh, strategizing behind his back to find something to accuse him of. So if Jesus Christ, for preaching the good news, he was post persecuted and unfortunately even crucified to his death for doing that which was right. When you look at what has happened to black people, it puts everything in perspective. So you have to remember that when you are doing something, I think, I don't know if it's Brother Patrick or Brother Warren who said it, there will always be someone out there who is trying to mislead or misguide or trying to create about some confusion. So as we are winding down on the clock, let's try to see if we can get some closing statements and uh, what uh, the final thoughts. So let's go to Patrick. Uh, I know you joined towards the, uh, when we had started the program, but what lessons, what is your final comment that you want our listening audience to learn about the 1921 Chusa massacre, what what is your uh, pitch to the community? Well, I mean, it would be kind of what we've done during this discussion, right? I think, you know, history can be a, a, a of great of great use to us if we look back and learn the lessons um, that the past will teach us. You know, so this whole incident with Tulsa, Oklahoma, is is we should look back and try to learn the lessons and learn the lessons that will help take us forward today. And I think that's been discussed discussed during this this whole program. And I, I think that mm-hmm. that's key. That's great. I mean, because those lessons, um, things that we've done right, things you know, mistakes that may have been made, they can help us move forward. You know, if we'll learn those lessons, right? Then we should learn those lessons, and we should move forward proudly, and uh, uh, in the spirit of togetherness, and 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 just in a positive spirit, take those lessons and move forward, and try to make those who sacrifice for us proud. Thank you, thank you for that uh, great comment. Let's go to Miss Andevele. Miss Andevele. Uh, what is your take from this presentation and just uh, what's your uh, pitch to our listening audience on this discussion? Yeah, uh, thank you. 
Um, my take uh, from this discussion is that, you know, I, I see, you know, a lot of hope. I see progression. I see, you know, gradual positive steps that we are making as black people. And uh, when I'm really looking at from now going like forward, I really see us getting much, much better. We need to get more of these kind of platforms where people can openly talk, especially even for the benefit of our kids so that, you know, we don't fall on the same track. But in terms of getting better, I'm very hopeful. So let's get more of these uh, platforms where we can share this kind of information. Let's invite more people to listen so that we have it in the back of our minds what we are up against. Thank you, thank you. Brother Warren, your final comment? I just like to encourage uh, those who have been listening to listen to the first part of this topic uh, of Tulsa that was done. And I want to say that this dialogue among continental Africans and African-Americans is powerful. And I, I often fantasize that even with my radio program, New Orleans Wake Up, that that somewhere in the African countries at night, that there are people that would tune in on the radio and listen to these kind of conversations being done by African Americans and continental Africans and, and blacks in the Caribbean and blacks in Latin America uh, and even blacks in the South Pacific. And I think the young people, I think that if we can foment relationships between young black people around the world, that will be a medicine that will be very potent for the resurrection of African people. Because by default, Noah, these young people, the American black, the, the, the Zambian, Ethiopian, the Jamaican, the black in Cuba, they know that they have something called blackness. They know that there's something out there that's unique about them, but we're not giving them a codified, institutionalized lesson about who they are in connection with each other. So, you, you know, we know that people on the African continent are inspired by the music, by the dance, by the fashion, even by the political protest of U.S. blacks. And U.S. blacks are constantly inspired by many of the things from the African continent. I look at little black girls at the store. I saw a little black girl at the store today. She had her hair braided in a style that I know is a Yoruba braiding style. But I don't think that little girl or her mother probably know who the Yoruba people are. But some kind of way, this this tendency to do our hair in a natural style seems to be universal. In other words, white women cannot teach black women how to do their hair. So we must codify and we must institutionalize the black world experience for our young people because we're about elders now, no, we're about we're about elders now and we must look to them as being the leaders in the future for our survival. That that's very true. Well said Brother Warren. So I want to thank Brother Warren and thank Patrick and Mr. Debele for joining this uh, program to shed some light and ask some questions. So as we conclude the show, 
I just want to encourage people that this show airs every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So we encourage you to tune in every Wednesday and listen to the ways of wisdom that we have to share with you all. So studying history enables us to develop better understanding of the world in which we live. Building and building knowledge and understanding of historical events such as the Tusa racial massacre and other trends, especially over the past century, enables us to develop a much greater appreciation of current events. Because what was happening back then, and when you look at what is happening now, the difference maker is you as a person. I like especially that song by Michael Jackson, look yourself in the mirror. And if you want to change, the person that you see in the mirror is where you start from. So as a people, we have to understand that we are a very resilient group. We have been through so much. A lot has been thrown on us, but it is up to us to continue. And I think I'm just especially proud because when you look at what has happened to our people over hundreds and hundreds of years, our people are still standing. That is, ladies and gentlemen, the definition of resilience. And other people can see that. This is why they do everything to distract, to disrupt, and to disturb the black agenda. So join us next week at the same time as we continue these conversations. We are doing our part to empower, to educate, and to inform our listeners. There are so many things that black people are doing, so we are also doing our little part to just move the agenda forward. So in the words of Peter Tosh, uh, the great Jamaican singer, we leave you with this song that encourages you to stand up, standing up for your rights, you're standing up for the rights of your children, those who are living now, those who, who will be born from your children's children. So enjoy this track and thanks to Brother Warren, Patrick, and Mr. Ndevele. It's good night for now. Thanks.
Stand up. 